want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. I want to read something to you. This is um, where we were mentioning last week and talking about last week, and I want to continue in this today. The Bible tells us in, in Romans that if by the death of Jesus we have been reconciled to God, then how much more by his life shall we be saved? And so I, I want to, I'm talking about this with you because We must know that we are saved by the life of Jesus. His death reconciled us to God. His life saves us. And so I want to bring this out to you today. We'll go through as much of this as we possibly can. But something very important for you to understand. In verse 20 of Mark 7. That which comes out of the man. That defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now we know the devil is wicked. We know he is grossly evil. We know that. The devil is sinister. The devil is brilliant. He, he leads an army, if you will, of darkness that is well calibrated, well organized, and and has their duties and has their ranks, and they go throughout this world trying to advance that kingdom of darkness. We call these demons or fallen angels, if you will, that are operating in the world today. But honestly, I want you to understand that the chief thing that Satan went after when God created the heavens and the earth, it was man. Man was created in the image of God. Man is very unique. Man has capabilities and potentials that no other creature of God does. We don't know that angels are inventive. We don't know that angels have vast imaginations. We don't know that angels are creative. But this passage here in Mark chapter 7 tells us something very plainly. It is not from the devil that all the wickedness comes. It's from the heart of man that all of the wickedness comes. And if we understand that, then we must understand that the chief need in our life is salvation. But from what? It is the salvation from our flesh. The salvation from our hearts. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. And that is what is so beautiful in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, that God gives us a new heart. And so the devil went with a strategy to bring the fall of man in creation. And he went and he seduced the woman and he deceived her. The woman then manipulated her husband to sin with her. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was manipulated by his wife. And this has been the course of history ever since. But the devil knew that if I can destroy man's relationship with God, kill his spirit, then that spirit would be vacant. I could enter the spirit of man and man vested with authority and power and creative ability and ingenuity, then the devil could begin to manipulate his plans in the earth through that vehicle we call mankind. And so when man fell, that vacuum was created and Satan has quickly filled it. One of the beautiful things about redemption is God has made our spirits alive. Now, please understand death does not mean the same thing in every context of the word. There's a thing called physical death. There's a thing called spiritual death. And so spiritual death is not the same as physical death. 
And when we died spiritually, we were separated from God. And we had no relationship with God and no communion with God. You can't even know the things of God naturally. They're spiritually discerned. So what the Lord did for us is he has come to redeem us and make us alive again. And being made alive again, that just simply means now our spirits can once again be inhabited by God. And so man lived in this dead state spiritually and he was left to his soul. Man would do what he thought was right in his own eyes. He would be his own God. He would make his own decisions and not realize in the full extent of that he was just an enemy of God. And he was an enemy of all of God's ways. And so this was the context of man's life. And we find that God in redemption He causes us to be born again. And the Spirit of the Lord comes to live within us. And we get new hearts, right? New hearts where all of these perverse things don't come out of them. But the things that are good and pure and right before the Lord. And the Bible teaches us that we have a flesh. And as I was telling you before, and I'll say it again, when you read the book of Romans, for example, you have to be very careful that you understand that when you read the word sin in the book of Romans, it doesn't always mean the same thing. Sometimes when you read the book of Romans and it says sin, the wages of sin, it means the breaking of the law. It is a particular act that maybe you lied, maybe you cheated, maybe you lusted, and that particular act, the wages of that is death. But then it also talks about the sins. We're not under the dominion of sin. We're not under the authority of sin. And that talks about the principle of sin that exists in our flesh. Our flesh. I'm not talking about our skin. I'm talking about this carnal nature that resulted from the fall and the transgression. And we still have it. And there's nothing in the Bible that God does to reform your flesh or to make it better. The only answer to that is death. And so I want you to read this with me in Romans chapter 7. I just want to see a couple of things here. And maybe one day we'll come to this later and teach on it. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul is pivoting, if you will. He has been laying out doctrine from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 6. And what he's doing is, is he's putting Jews and Gentiles on the same footing. The Jews have the law of God. The Gentiles do not. The Jews broke the law of God and the Gentiles sinned against God in their conscience. Both of them are guilty before God. And so Paul is just trying to say to the Jews, you're no better off than the Gentiles, really, if you've sinned and you're not right with God. The soul that sins, it shall die. And so this is what he does through Romans 1 through 6. And he pivots in chapter 7, and he is now expressing his testimony, even from his birth and through his life in Jesus Christ. And I believe as Paul is writing this in Romans 7, I believe he is testifying of his Christian life. I believe he is finding himself as a Christian struggling, knowing the right things that he should do, but not finding the power to do them. And knowing the things that he shouldn't do, but those tend to be the things that he would do. And he's in this conflict, and I believe for many, many reasons, Paul is writing in Romans chapter 7 of his life as a Christian and wanting to have the victory that is in Jesus Christ. 
And so number one, I want you to just see this with me. He says in verse 17, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. A lost man couldn't say that. A lost man couldn't say it's not me that does it. It's sin that dwells in me. Only a twice born man can make a statement such as that. And another reason that I believe that Paul here is sharing his Christian testimony as a Christian is because when Paul was a Pharisee and he was lost without God and he was under the law, there is no way I've never read anywhere in the Bible where a Pharisee threw himself under the bus as being guilty of sin. They were all righteous and they were all holy. But here in Romans chapter 7, he says, I'm wicked. There's nothing good in me. I don't do the thing that I should do. I'm sorry, Pharisees don't say that. Pharisees, like Paul says, is touching the law. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. Nobody's better than me in the law. I'm not about to throw myself under the bus. And then he says this, if you will. As he goes down and, and he begins to make this confession, he says in verse 18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Now we're talking about the principle of sin there dwells no good thing to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good. I find not for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil, which I would not, that's what I do. Now, if I do that, I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Now, I want you to notice the eyes in all of this. The eyes, the self-proclamations. I, 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 even prior to this. But he says this in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And so he is confessing an inward man. That's a born-again man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, my conscience, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is Moses' ordinances, which is in my members as well. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what he's about to say is not the solution. He's summing up the problem. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. In other words, I know what I should do and I know what I shouldn't do. But with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. And that's the way I've been living. But I thank God through Jesus Christ. The Lord has delivered me from this because he says in chapter eight, he celebrates the victory. And this is the victory. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and far sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Walking after the flesh is knowing what you should do, knowing what you shouldn't do, but with no power to be able to perform that. And so it is through the spirit of God, the life of Christ that we are saved and we're brought into freedom and we're brought into liberty and we're brought into victory. And so he says this in verse seven, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. 
It doesn't mean it disagrees with it. It can't fulfill it. it. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But praise God, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so isn't that wonderful that to be spiritual just simply means to have the Holy Spirit now. And so what Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 7 and as he comes into Romans chapter 8 is now that we've come to Jesus Christ and we have been born again, we must learn to live by faith in the spirit of God. We've lived all of our life in the soul. We've lived all of our life by what we thought was right and what we thought was wrong and how to perform that. Maybe we became very religious. Maybe we impressed a lot of people with our morals, but that doesn't cut it with God. And so even to the best of our ability and our willpower, we're never going to be able to fulfill what God demands. So what do we need? We need the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God can fulfill what God demands. And so it doesn't mean we live any way we want to live. Now the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. Praise God. How? By the spirit of life. By the death of Jesus we're reconciled to him. And by his life we are saved. And that is absolutely so beautiful. And so we had talked about Israel being delivered from Egypt. And Egypt being a type of the flesh. And how they were set free from this. Two passages I want to go to very quickly. Galatians chapter 4. I want you to see this in regards to our victory in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4.4 4, it says this. This is our Christmas passage right here. But when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isn't that beautiful? Now I'm going to let it speak for itself because it's simple and it's very clear. But Jesus came to redeem us who were under the law. We have to get out from under the law. Why? Because our basic problem are our hearts and our flesh. When Jesus was born in this world, born of the virgin, the son of God, there was no sin in him. He was tempted and tested in every way, but he sinned not. When the devil came to him, the Bible says very plainly, he had nothing in him. There was nothing in Jesus that the devil could latch hold of and entice and bring him into sin. But according to Mark chapter 7, when the devil comes to any of Adam's children... Does he have anything to lay hold of? Absolutely. According to Mark chapter 7, there's murder and adultery and lust and thievery and lying. And every evil thing is in us. So the devil has no problem. But when he came to Jesus, there was nothing in Jesus. There was nothing that the devil could entice in him. And Jesus lived separate and holy. And so when Jesus came, Colossians says this, when Jesus died, he nailed to his cross the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. Jesus took the law. He didn't just do away with it. He fulfilled it. And in fulfilling the law, he removed it from us because it was an obstacle to us. In other words, our redemption and our salvation demanded that we get new hearts and it demanded that we receive a power that would be able to overcome the insatiable lusts of our flesh 
and that would have to be the Holy Spirit of God. And so these twofold things, Jesus came, he delivered us who were under the law. He delivered us from that because where does sin get its power? According to 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be unto God which delivers us from this because the strength of sin is the law. And so it is the law that gives your flesh an appetite. Just say, don't do this. And that's all you begin to think about. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 7. I know what I'm not supposed to do. And that's all I think about. I exercise my will and my power to never do that. I've, I've got to go on a diet. I've got to lose weight. And so I can't eat this and I can't do that. And all I think about is eating that. You know, oh, you, you, you tell your kids, you tell your teenagers, I forbid you to go to that movie. All I want to do is go to that movie. I mean, I'm not even interested in it, but mom and dad said I can't. So I want to find out what it's all about. You know, some of the best advertising for political parties or anything is a controversy. You know, oh, we can't show this ad on TV. So what do the news stations do? This is the forbidden ad and everybody watches it. And they have free advertisement now, you know, because this is forbidden. And that's what the law does. It just pulls out your sin. It pulls it incite your flesh to action so you have to be free from the law and you have to be free from your flesh and that is through Jesus's death and the gift of the Holy Spirit now it's beautiful and that is the salvation that the Lord wants us to bring I was going to go to another scripture but I don't have time so I want to go to this I want to go to this aspect of our life when God was delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt he was bringing them into the land of promise the land of Canaan right That was God's promise to them and that was God's desire to them. And God whetted their appetite for this by telling them things like it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And you're going to live in houses you didn't build. All these beautiful things. And so God begins to bring them out. And while God is bringing them out, I want you to understand that the land of Canaan or the promised land is not a representation of heaven. It is not. Some people think that, you know, if, as, as the scriptures in the Old Testament are examples for us, then the promise or Canaan is heaven. It's not. There's war in Canaan. There are enemies in Canaan. When you go to heaven, no more fighting. When you go to heaven, no enemies. But when, but when you come into Christ and what God's promise is for you is the rest of Jesus. This is my promised land for you as a believer. I'm getting you out of the bondage of your flesh. And I want to bring you into the rest of my promise, which is my grace. And I want you to live in this. And 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 there's going to be battles. You're going to fight. You're going to have enemies. But you're going to be victorious in every way. And so Canaan represents the spirit-filled life. Canaan, the promised land, represents the spirit-filled life. And I just, I want you to see that and I want you to understand it. Now in Titus chapter 2, we're told how we come into all of that. And I want you to read this with me. It's a very important passage. He says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. And I would ask you, who is your teacher? And how are you taught? Because the Bible says very clearly that grace is our teacher. Now you can take the Bible and teach yourself all kinds of things. But Moses could still be your teacher. 
even with the Bible. Because you begin to see a list of do's and don'ts even in the Bible. And grace may not be your teacher. But specifically, grace is supposed to be our teacher. Definition of grace is God's divine influence upon our hearts and souls. God himself. And that's why John says, you have no need that any man teach you for you yourself have the unction of the Holy One of God. And the Holy Spirit is your teacher. And we have the word of God to test everything. To test all doctrine and to test all truth. The Holy Spirit's not going to teach us something different than the word says. But what he teaches us is not words on a page. And he says, now I'm going to give you a little Greek here. And I'm going to give you a little Hebrew. And I'm going to teach you a little history here. That's not how he does it. What he does is he gives you the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of yourself. And he stands there as the answer to the fulfillment of that word. And that is how grace teaches. And so this grace that brings salvation appears and teaches us to deny godliness and worldly lust. And that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope, which is the rapture of the church. So grace teaches you how to do this. And this is the promised land. This is Canaan. This is what God wants to bring you into. I have come through my son, Jesus Christ, and I have redeemed you from the law. I have come and I have set your sins aside. And I will remember them no more. I've set you free. You are free from your power. You are free from your old master. I want you to come into this grace now. I want you to come into this rest now. That is going to teach you how to live victoriously and godly and righteously. And how to deny your lust that war against you. This grace is going to teach you that. And yet, our struggle, like Paul was in in Romans chapter 7. How do you actually do that? How does that happen in your life? And it is by the Holy Spirit of God. And so it is his life that saves us. He rose to live in to live in you. His strength is for your weakness. His wisdom is for your folly. His joy is for your sorrow. His plenty is for your poverty. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night into thy freedom, gladness and light. Out of my sickness into thy health. Out of my sin into thyself. Jesus, I come to thee. It is amazing how a natural man destitute, the very vehicle of satanic devices, man destined for hell, an enemy of God, can become spiritual. Filled with the spirit of Christ, alive unto God and no more the instrument of hell, but the instrument of heaven. And that is the power of the blood and the power of redemption. No longer hate, but love. No longer angry, but kind. No longer bitter, but pleasant. No longer a divider, but a peacemaker. And that's Canaan. It's living in the victory. Living in the power and walking in the Holy Spirit of God, who is the most precious gift to the believer that we could ever have. The communion of the Holy Spirit, for he is Christ to you. Now, I'll close with this, the tragedy of the wilderness. In Israel's journeys out of Egypt and to the promised land, after that initial exodus, they would spend 40 years in the wilderness. And that generation would not enter their promise. They would not enter the rest. Their children would enter it, but not them. And this is the tragedy of Christendom. It was the tragedy of Israel for 40 years. Do you know that in days they left, in days they left Egypt and they stood at the Jordan River. Days 
It didn't take God years to get Israel across that wilderness. Days. But because of their unbelief to enter in. And what was their unbelief? Well, captives and slaves in Egypt. They knew there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. The Egyptian taskmasters are far too strong for us. We have no weapons. We have no battle instruments. We have no ability to organize ourselves to fight the Egyptians. We're totally at their mercy. And so what did Israel have? A cry. God help us. And God did. And God miraculously came and saved them. Just like many of us as Christians in here. We were in our sins. We were dead. There was nothing we could do. We're guilty before God. God, have mercy upon us. And he did. And he sent his son. And he died for us on the cross. And he forgave us of our sins. Praise God. And then what do we do? We take that new life in Jesus Christ. That new start. That new hope. And then we're going to begin to live this life. To prove to you, God, how sincere we are. And then Christians are going to come along the way and they're going to begin to look into their promise and say, oh man, you know what? I just don't think I can do this. I just don't think I can live this Christianity. I mean, I needed God to get me out of Egypt. I needed Jesus to get me out of sin. But now this perfecting of myself and being holy, I can't do it. And that's what Israel said when they were in the wilderness looking at that promised land. What did they say? We are not able. When did God ever ask if they were able? All God wanted them to know is the same God who got you out of Egypt will get you in there. But no, they could not believe God to do that. And therefore, they all died in unbelief. And there's a lot of Christians that live right there. A lot of Christians. They do not believe God can get them in. Why, it hadn't happened in enough time yet. Oh God, it's been 10 minutes since I prayed to be sanctified over this. Or God, it's been 10 years that I've prayed to be sanctified. Obviously, you cannot do it. And they become unbelievers. And they throw their confidence and their hope away. And the church will throw you away. Because the church has a time limit too on when you should be holy. But don't let any man separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Don't let any man do that. Don't let any sin do that. And so this was the tragedy of the wilderness journeys for Israel. And it is the tragedy of Christendom. People who, Christians who live in self-imposed poverty. How sad. Because they could not believe that the God who brought them out was the God who will bring them in. And the promise God said you will live in houses that you didn't build. You will eat fruit that you did not plant. And you will drink milk and honey flowing through the land. That's what I'll give you. But they couldn't believe God to get them into it. And that is the gospel of grace. And yet multitudes of people do not believe it. And they're not living in that rest. And in that power of the Holy Spirit of God. Just look at the lack of praise. Look at the religious exterior. Look at the confinement of the flesh. You know why you don't jump and shout and clap and sing and run and dance and all of these? Because the flesh won't let you. The flesh is still in control. But the Spirit of God wants to. Spirit of the Lord wants to pray. The Spirit of the Lord wants to be at prayer meeting tonight. Spirit of the Lord wants to be out on the streets. The Spirit of the Lord wants to be sharing the gospel. You know why we don't? Because the flesh won't let us. 
Oh, but we're saved and we're sanctified and our children grow up and they're living in this, these words of Christianity, but they look at the dire poverty of, of grownups and parents who are the, are the examples of the faith and say, this is destitute. I'm sick of manna every day. I don't want to do this Christian thing when I grow up. They haven't seen reality. They haven't seen it, but boy, let them taste the milk and honey. Let, let them get a hold of those grapes that are in the promised land. And I promise you this, moms and dads and grandparents, you, the children will want Jesus with everything that's in them. They will. There's nothing unattractive about Jesus Christ, but there's everything unattractive about the desert. But nothing about the promise. And our flesh gets in the way. It won't let us live. It won't let us do the things that God wants us to do. And so I pray that you will understand this because that is the flesh, the self-imposed poverty. People are still living under the influences of a defeated foe. The flesh is defeated. You think you're godly, but you're so impoverished. You long for Egypt and your desires for it keep coming up in your lust. You neither enjoy Egypt nor the promise. You live in a gray middle where everything seems to just be bland and hot and dry and nothing much to it. Or I might call it dumped in a desert when God wants you to feast in the promise. I just want to say a few of these things to you as we close. Nothing is quite so pathetic as a Christian who has been vested with all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Christ and to whom has been made available all of the resources of heaven Yet who in ignorance or defiance of the truth scratches out a mere existence in the meager resources. And I believe this of many Christians who attend churches all over this nation. They are simply picking up the crumbs from the feast of the spiritual who truly enjoyed the church. But most will go and they'll pick the crumbs up that the spiritual have been feasting in the presence of God. And the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit and the life of God raging like a river through them. When everybody can have it, but we choose to live in self-imposed poverty and eat the crumbs that the pastor dropped off the table today. Or the worship leaders dropped off the table today. Or maybe a few people gathered in an altar. Praising God with all of their hearts. Drop the crumbs off the altar. And we'll go and pick a few of those things up. And oh, that'll get me through to next Sunday. And the spiritual are feasting every day. Every day. The delights and the beautiful things of God. This is important for us to understand. They did not enter because of unbelief. I pray for you to believe today to enter into the fullness of God's grace, for that is what he extends to you. We all go through the trial period learning how to live in the spirit of God, learning how to overcome the leadership of the soul. And that teacher is grace. And he's bringing us into that rest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forty years it took God to teach his people that it takes the same kind of faith to get you out as it does to get you in. Joshua. Not Moses is the only true entrance. And for those of you that may not know, the Hebrew name Joshua translated in the Greek is Jesus. God gives such dramatic demonstrations of his promises that he even 
told Israel, Moses will not bring you in. Jesus will. Joshua will bring you in. And that was the only way we're coming into God's rest. Moses can't do it. The carnal Christian is the one who has received the Holy Spirit and the fullness of Christ, but ignores his presence and struggles to live the Christian life as though Christ were not there. He's constantly begging for what he already has, but somehow refuses to take it. God's hand is open and everything in it is yours. But we live our whole life begging Oh, God, please help me. Oh, God, give me joy. Oh, God, please do this for me. Oh, God, give me wisdom. God's like, it's open. It's all yours. It's all yours. But we choose to live in the wilderness rather than come into the promise. And I pray that we all do. And so I ask you this. Are you in the promised land? If if you are, your portion is to reign in life. We are to reign by one Jesus Christ. We are to know joy unspeakable that is full of glory. We're to know peace that passes understanding. We're to know that every place the sole of our feet goes, we are kings and priests unto God. And we have authority and power to represent Jesus Christ right there and then. You can be strong and of good courage. You neither need to be afraid nor dismayed. For you must know and you do know that the Lord your God is with you whithersoever you go. And this is your victory, even your faith. This is your victory. This is your entrance, Jesus Christ, and your faith in him. So I'll close with this in Hebrews chapter 3, if you will. This is the synopsis of everything I've been saying. And I would just like you to read this. In chapter 3, it's talking about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And he is constantly saying in Hebrews chapter 3 about the condition of your heart. Don't let your heart be hard. Don't let your heart be hard. I'm appealing to people to come into the promised land. I'm I'm appealing to people to not live in poverty. Not live in self-imposed poverty. Walk in the spirit of God where there's true victory. And yet some people are even upset with me even saying that. And so the Bible says in Hebrews 3.12. Take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God, exhort one another daily while it is called today. This isn't the only time he tells us to do that. He says in chapter 10, we should do this every day as well, especially when we see the end of the world upon us. And so we're to exhort everyone and we're to help each other, lest there be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Wow. Is he speaking to us? Yeah. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us, therefore. This is for us. Let us, therefore, fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest... Any of you should seem to come short of it. It is not Joshua and Moses hand in hand that is leading the people into the promise. It is Joshua alone. It is Jesus alone that leads you into his rest. 
For unto us was the gospel preached as well as to them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Isn't that beautiful? Just faith. Faith enters into the rest. As he said, I have sworn in my wrath... If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not because of unbelief. Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice and harden not your hearts. That's been the cry of God through the centuries. For if Jesus, that's Joshua in the Old Testament, in verse 8, that's who he's talking about. If Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin and what was he telling us enter into rest enter into right enter into rest here it is verse 16 let us therefore come come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need and I don't have time to read all of Hebrews but you could just read the whole thing because it's all about Jesus Christ and the rest that he gives us through the gospel Through his grace that he has done it for all of us once and for all. And if you can believe that and you can enter into that promised land, a spirit filled life as a Christian, then you will know the victories that God has for you. You will know the insatiable joy and delight that Jesus died to give you. Because just as with Egypt, Israel and Egypt, God did not give them Passover just to protect them. God didn't just take them out of Egypt to bring them to the promise. Where was he bringing them? To himself. He was bringing Israel to himself. And where is this gospel of grace bringing us? To him. Not to church. But to him. And this is what God desires. And that is the rest of our life. And there are many people. Maybe struggling in religion. To better yourself. To calm your flesh. To tame your flesh. It'll never work. It'll never. There's only one answer to that flesh. It's death. And there's only one who can kill it. And that is the Holy Spirit. Walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Be patient with one another. Don't throw your confidence away because you fail. Because your confidence is not in you to succeed. It is in him to sanctify you. Walk in the spirit of God. Draw near to the throne of grace. And you will find all of God's mercy and help for your life. His hand is open. It is not closed to you. And he wants you to have a fruitful life. He wants you to live in houses you didn't build and eat fruit that you didn't plant. 
and drink his milk and honey. And it is all there. And the spiritual will today, they will. They will eat it. They will drink it. They will live in it. And a lot of people will go to church today and they'll pick up a few crumbs that the spiritual dropped. And they'll say, wasn't church wonderful? Wasn't church wonderful today? But the spiritual will leave and they'll say, oh, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Father, thank you in your precious name for your great love for us. Dear God, we love you and we thank you so much, Lord, that you sent your son to deliver us. Not only from hell and Satan and all of that, but from ourselves, from our flesh, from our perverted hearts. And God, thank you that you even give us the grace to be able to say to you, I need a new heart. I need a new heart. And Father, I pray that for Christians who are living in the wilderness, they don't have to stay there. You didn't intend it to be for years that they live in that. You intend them to live in the spirit and walk in the spirit and know the victory of the Holy Ghost. Not the struggles and not the perplexities and not the setbacks of trying to calm and tame and make the flesh obey. Because it just won't. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are our rest. You are. And you're our shepherd and you lead us. And we love you. And we give you glory this morning. In Jesus' name.